Today is the day to wake, work, and win. Welcome to The Standard. Chief Isaacson, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with, you know, you changing departments early on in your career. You started in Pensacola, more urban-like department. Now you're with Escambia County, you know, a lot more rural, a lot more, you know, longer response times. Just a, It's just a different response model based on just the amount of area you have to cover. What made you switch from that urban district to what you've got now in Escambia? Well, you know, a big part of it was being recruited, you know, by the fire chief and the deputy chief. They were very enticing to come out and basically they, they kind of in a nutshell said, you know, there's a once in a career opportunity to come out and not just walk on the sidewalk that somebody else created, but frame it, form it and build it. In the 90s, I was really pushing for smooth bore nozzles, high flow, low pressure, you know, I was big into engine operations, and they basically told me if I came out to the county, I could purchase smooth boards for the engine three quarter and two and a half lines on day one, institute rope bags and things like that. So they kind of offered to empower me as the head of the training division that would dictate the operations of the future of a you know larger 23 station county fire department. So you know, anytime you travel around the country to fire conferences, and I started going to FDIC when I went to Indianapolis in the 90s. And so many times you, you get into the job, you want to do things, but you work in a place where the culture doesn't really care what you learned at the last conference. And now I had this offer to go to a firehouse or a fire department that has the fire chief and deputy chief telling me, hey, we're going to go with what you want to train on and, and the direction you want to take us operationally through training and response. I would think in a place like Escambia County that it becomes of the utmost important that everybody – is dialed in their skills because it's not like a an urban fire department where you know eight rigs on scene in under 10 minutes i mean you might have one rig there for quite a while and they may not even be staffed to four people so you got two to three guys doing everything so how important is the training at escambia based on the response model you guys have there how important is it for every guy to know his job and be super proficient at it well you know the critical thing that i learned over the last 18 years going from you know one engine company in the core area to now we have 13 is time delay tactics is what i like to call it and it's you know you need all these tactics done but some of them are going to be delayed based on resources so what's the most critical tactic that's going to achieve the greatest results with the lowest number of personnel and of course that's where water on the fire came about but next to that is, is also not getting wrapped around what I like to call promotional tactics, where you think you got to achieve four or five or six things. Just focus on the one thing you can do and do right. Um, and that's where water on a fire, big water application was a big deal. But also, you know, it's always critical, but even so much more back 18 years ago was the efficiency of each individual. And we almost started with the driver, maximizing what the driver can do for you on that first due, first company arriving, from helping getting that line stretched out in the front yard to getting the tools to the front door while they're masking up, 
definitely the driver has to focus on getting the line charge, pump of pressure, you know, managing the pump, but understanding that there is a lot they can do between the rig and that point of entry, that front door. So I think maximizing that in every, every person. I'm a huge believer in our flag and our soldiers and just a little bit of study, and I've done on special teams. Uh, my mom actually worked at Air AFSOC, Air Force Special Operations Command, um, as a civilian for, you know, nearly 30 years. And so growing up with my father being in the military, I understand things like whether it be the Rangers or AFSOC or the SEAL teams, that it's pretty phenomenal what a small group of individuals with the right drive, the right passion, and then, you know, the key element, training's the key, and having that down, not just the training, but understanding what everybody does. It's like when somebody's forcing a door and you got two people, somebody's on a hallig and somebody's on the axe, and understanding hit, 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 and then saying the words drive. And then when you say drive, you're looking at the forks, you're not looking back because you're worried about them hitting your wrist or whatever. And that person that looks back, it's obvious there was a failure of training and a failure of trust. So I think that's the critical thing is, you know, having a group or a team or a company of firefighters with the same mindset, passion, and drive to commit to training and then getting those calls and seeing the results, which drives them to be even greater. How much of your training would you say is focused just on the basics? Oh, the whole career. I mean, it goes back to being a kid and, and playing soccer. I was not a very good player on the field. I had asthma. So my dad said, try playing goalie. So I got in the goalie box. I wasn't very good in the goal. And my dad just said, you got to focus on the basics. And my dad built a full-size soccer goal at our house, literally in the regulation size. You, know, you can imagine having that in the backyard. And my dad said, go find a kid that's two or three years older than you that's a striker, you know, a forward player. And, you know, if we have to, we'll pay him a little money. We'll get a bag of balls, you know. And this is, you know, this is in the late 80s, you know, for me to, you know, do this. And I just practice over and over and over again. And then that kind of just transcend into the fire service for me. You know, and definitely, you know, early on mentors uh, in the fire service that just drove that tactics put out fires. The whole slogan that we have, and we actually have a sticker that tactics put out fires, for me that goes back literally since I was a junior fireman. I became a junior fireman in 1988, and, you know, my dad always said, don't get into fancy stuff, just focus on being good at working the nozzle and flowing water. You know, make sure you're good at just masking up. I mean, my dad told me as a junior fireman, you got to be good at masking up. He never gave me a time frame. He just said, faster is always better. So, you know, it's kind of like, you know, Jerry Rice or Larry Bird or whoever, Walter Payton, you know, the, the, the players back then, whether it was running a pass or, or doing free throws, just practicing over and over until you have it perfect. You know, do it till you fail. Yeah, I think also when you're practicing – your skills. I mean, you're working so hard at a lot of these basic skills. No matter what you're working towards, these skills, you want them to be tested. So you kind of get more excited about going to a fire. You know, you don't you don't fear it. Like some guys fear it, you know. And I think that fear comes from just not being good at it. You know, you don't want to be exposed. You don't nobody wants to fail. But that's kind of the byproduct of just practicing and trying to hone in on your basic skills so much is like well, when that big game comes when that big fire comes you're you're ready like i want yeah i want to put this shit to work oh no doubt i mean the, the practice the training the commitment has got to be so serious so in depth so deep that your, your brain's thinking about it but you're not even aware that you're thinking about it. it's just it's rapid decision making 
and when you're done, the best feeling I have is after a very significant incident, it's over, and I listen to the audio or I watch a video, and I think, how did I think about those things? Like, you know what I mean? What made me decide to call for that tactic or to do this or how I performed? And that motivates me to train more, whether it be, you know, watching film or taking classes or rereading an article, just, you know, wanting to be pushed to the ultimate. I tell everybody, like you said, I don't want anybody's stuff to catch on fire. I'm tired of seeing death and destruction. I mean, there's no doubt. It, you know, I, I'm sick and tired of seeing it. But on the other hand, if it's going to happen, I want to be on duty. If the biggest, most complex incident happens, I want to be there. I want to be first, and I want to be tested. And, and I'm going to fail sometimes, but that's going to drive me to be more committed for the next time for that big game. I mean, that was one of the benefits of growing up playing soccer, like you said. Your dad putting a soccer goal in the backyard. Uh, sports does a good job of teaching failure and coming back from it and the value of that. No guaranteed. And, you know, anybody that's heard me talk about gallons per second or water on the fire or getting in a conversation, I don't get as worked up about it now, but I used to argue for three hours with somebody about smoothbore versus fog back in the 90s. Now I'm just like, you know, I don't even waste my time arguing with people. But my passion for it comes from being – a kid going to fires with my dad, you know, in the late 70s into the 80s. And, you know, we were using automatics or selecto gallonage nozzles. And my dad didn't know. We didn't know. That's just what the fire service did. And we were flowing, you know, who knows back then, 50, 60, 70 gallons a minute. And I watched houses burn down. And, you know, I started going to fires and getting more involved at a very young age as a junior firefighter. And, man, we could keep a house or a mobile home. I mean, we could keep that thing burning for an hour. I mean, I don't know. We put 10,000 gallons on it, and, you know, I've written about it, and I've told this story about um, 1992 when a guy named Bill Richards came up from the fire college and talked about BTUs versus GPM and the National Fire Academy flow formula, and that week we had a fire in a one-story ranch. The first time I'd ever pulled a two-and-a-half on a fire, a house fire, we pulled it, and the thing went out in, like, 60 seconds. I was like holy cow, Rev, we've been doing it wrong. And so all those failures just drove a passion when I finally got to see it done right. It was like those failures just made my drive and my obsession with doing it right that much more important. Or I could tell stories about going to a fire with a hooligan tool, the old wedge three-piece halligan and a six-pound axe, and not being able to get through the most basic steel door and a steel frame and thinking, you know what, the ISTA book is right. When you find a steel door and a steel frame, you find another way in. And then the first time I went and took a class from Bill Gustin on forcible entry, and it was like with the right axe and a right halligan, this really isn't a big deal. And then starting to do drop bars and getting more into it, it's like it's, it's just a technique and training. Well, you also got to invest in the mental side of firefighting because, I mean, you can be physically fit and have all that, but firegrounds change from lots of different angles so to speak you know the the furnishings inside building construction everything's changed so if you aren't brushing up on that then you got a blind spot yeah it's a blind spot and then you you know it might it might actually just hinder all the progress you made yeah you know how to do these skills but if you don't know when to apply them you can make things worse you also keep your head in the game yeah it's a good way you know like it it keeps you invested in the in the craft. Oh, no, guaranteeing you got to have your own baseline. You know, there's one thing that that I'm very confident about. 
I've never wanted to be anybody else. And I'm pretty, I have some pretty big mentors that, you know, I look up to, I mean, almost borderline idolize them, but I've never wanted to be them because I know I can't be them. They just worked in different cities, did different things. But I know that I've always wanted to achieve, you know what I mean? The discipline they have and just repetition of doing it over and over and being able to, to, when it's time to be on the big stage, you know, of an event, whether it be, you know, somebody's trapped or worst case scenario, a fireman's trapped, truly knowing that I put in the time to be prepared and ready and living up to the people that I look up to. Because at the end of the day, I mean, that's, you know, that's what you have to do is be committed to not failing at the most important time in life. So you got 28 years now in the fire service and the last 14 of them have been as a battalion chief. How have you remained or even increased your passion for the job since, you know, you promoted and rose up through the ranks because that doesn't always happen. Yeah. Usually when you get promoted, your passion goes down because you're so focused on administration and. Yeah. And sometimes you just get burned. You just, you're, you, you get disconnected. You know, that's what I think it is. It's more of a disconnect. Yeah. How, so how have you stayed so, I guess, so in line with the mission and so passionate about it? I would say the biggest thing is associating with other sick individuals like us um, <laughs> around the country. Just, you know, talking to people like Ray McCormick or, you know, Bill Gustin or, you know, Mike Lombardo, Jim McCormick. You know, all those big names of guys that, that I, I follow and look up to the same people I did 20 years ago. My list, my top list of mentors and people I look up to, they're no different. They're the same people they've always been. You know, Chief McGrail, people that were at FDIC in the 90s. And so now I'm, I'm, you know, friends with them, but they're still my mentors. They still paved the way that I'm following. And so talking to them and realizing that, you know, all of them have 30-some years. They have more time than I do, more time on a bigger job than I do. They've been to bigger and more fires than I'll ever go to. So when I talk to them and they still get excited, like to get on a phone or just to talk to Bill Gustin, who had 40 years on Valentine's Day this year just with Miami-Dade alone, it's like, how could I not stay engaged? How could I not continue to be a student of the fire service, you know? And when I talk to those individuals and see what they're doing or, you know, look at what Jim McCormick's doing at FDTM. I mean, the guy's been doing it forever. He's perfected the world of vocational curriculum for the fire service. I mean, if you've never been out to Indianapolis to FDTN's training facility it is the premier place in the country and he continues to add elements that didn't exist in his own thing his programs like the fire combat thing or this new rescue program we just had a firefighter go to it and he's like texting me every day and and he's been to some extensive training saying it's by far the best most intense realistic class where they're doing ves under live heat and live fire and so when i see folks like that raising the bar raising their expectations, and they, too, are learning new things, it's like, I know I'm never going to learn it all, so it just it just delves you deeper into the job. Chief, you said that you're never too old or too good to train. I mean, that must have helped you as you've risen through the ranks and trying to get people underneath you to, to be as passionate as you are, you know, because you kind of live by that. I mean, Probably helped. It. I mean, we all know that it's a huge help when you're asking guys to do something, but you're doing it yourself, especially when you're wearing a white helmet. Yeah, and you do it first. Well, 
I always tell everybody when somebody asks me how we get to do what we do in Escambia County, first and foremost, it, it's a rare thing what we have in Escambia. I'm, I'm spoiled because we just have 90-plus percent of everybody wants to be there. They love the job. They want to go to fires. They want to train. So, you know, that makes it easy. I mean, when, when, you're, on a, when you're on a team and all the players are dying to be on that team, it makes it a little easier. So that's really not a fair question. I can't take credit for that. I mean, they just, they're self-motivated. I mean, like, you don't even have to do anything. And then fortunate, not fortunate, I don't know what you want to call it, but we have enough significant incidents and we have weird stuff happen that not very much time goes by that where something in Scandia County, whether it be a crazy special ops call or a fire, happens that just continues to motivate them to just be better for the next call. So that's not really a, a fair question to answer because we just, we're unique in that we were only 18 years old. We went from 16 independent volunteer fire departments to one county department in 2000, and basically we hired the volunteer firefighters that were doing it for free, that were obsessed with it, and now they're getting a paycheck and a pension. So, I mean, that's like playing sports. And all of a sudden, somebody shows up and says, hey, I'll pay you to do this. And then you're not losing that passion or desire. But for me to stay engaged in training is easy. I mean, golly, I mean, when we do like HROC, and you got Captain Morris with 40-some years in the FDNY, he's nearly 70 years old, he's still on the job, and it's 7 o'clock at night, we're looking out in the parking lot, and he's still forcing the door prop. I mean, who am I to, with him being that much more senior than me, there's like, there's just no room for even thinking about not training or getting into it you know just to see these guys just obsessed with it i mean you've done a good job of really showing us you know what type of culture scambia county has it's a good one guys love to work there um but like what keeps that culture going because that's something that can change you know in a matter of years depending on maybe who you're hiring or who's leading the top but what is What's the key to Escambia's successful culture? Well, I think the foundation, you know, when it was all volunteer in the 90s, it was like those volunteer companies around the country where there's a high level of esprit de corps and the desire, the mentality of, hey, we go to fires. And then just carrying that on with the foundational leaders that built it, that, hey, we're a fire department, we go to fires. And today that still goes on. And it can be detrimental because it can mess up and create complacency, but there's one thing our culture does from the, the senior most staff, like in a staff meeting, the, the, the fire chiefs that we've had, the deputy chief, all the way down is whether we're in a staff meeting or in the firehouse, we say we go to fires. Now, when we say that within, that's not a big deal. When you say that to people outside, sometimes it's taken the wrong way as a sense of arrogance or we're better than you, but it's not. It's, hey, we're telling ourselves that we go to fires, so every day we come to work, We've got to make sure that the air bottle's full in our air pack, our nozzles are ready to go, the hydrant bag's ready, you know, the tools are ready. we got to test the hydrant because we might have to, to force the worst door of our career tonight because we have the buildings and the frequency of it. So it drives a culture of, hey, that's what we do. And when, when you go around all the time telling yourself something, usually you don't do as much as you think, but it doesn't hurt. Trust me, when everybody comes to work and, like, thinks, hey, today we're going to a fire, your gear's by the rig ready. Your radio's got a good battery in it. Your air pack's full. The nozzle's ready. And I, I know that our, our folks, almost every company stretches a line every single day. Like, that's what we do. Um, not that EMS is not important, 
But in our county, EMS is handled by Scambia County EMS, and the fire backs them up when there's a, a, a certain level of time before they get there. So our leadership has always been nobody else is coming to put out a fire. We're the only ones that are going to put out the fire. We don't want a med call. EMS is going. So we've been driven by leadership that we shall be trained, prepared, and ready for immediate response to hand us, handle structural fires. And I think that helps the culture on that aspect of it, too. When it comes to where the fire service is at today, where would you put strong leadership on the level of importance to, to be able to create a culture like yours? I mean, you can't argue. The company officers everything. I mean, yes, you need good fire chiefs, good deputy chiefs, and battalion chiefs. But, I mean, you can see even in the worst battalion and the worst fire department in this country, a good company officer that's mature, not going to worry about what they're doing at fire headquarters. They're not going to worry about what they're doing on the other tours or the other watches. They're going to take their company and they're going to make them the best they can. Whether it's a three-person company or a five-person company, the company officer is going to drive it, you know. And Firehouse can build its own reputation. When I think about a firehouse with a phenomenal reputation is, you know, the Harlem Hilton in New York, Engine 69, you know, rest in peace, Michael Davison, you know, and 28 truck. I mean, to think about, yeah, the FDNY is an awesome fire department, but even within the FDNY, I'll never forget hearing Chief John Norman on the big stage a long, you know, whatever it was, 20 years ago, and he mentioned the Harlem Hilton. Now, there's 200 and some firehouses in the FDNY, and everybody knows Chief John Norman. He mentions the Harlem Hilton as one of the better in training and discipline firehouses. I've been fortunate enough to be there and see how they operate and work. You know, I think they're probably the first firehouse in the country to have a their own door prop homemade in the basement. And so taking away the department they're with, that one firehouse, that one firehouse is an elite firehouse. So if your department is a four-station fire department, you can build an elite firehouse within that four-station department, and that's the biggest message to a company officer. Stop worrying about what your battalion chief's doing or not doing. Stop worrying about the deputy chief or fire chief, what they're doing and not doing. You worry about what you're doing when you're on duty with your company. Make the most of your time to drill. Make the drill realistic, relevant, not too short, not too long. And remember, slow your roll. You're not going to make a great company in a month. It's going to take months, if not years. And company pride takes years to get it where you're going to pass that on to somebody else, as they say, pay it forward, leave it better than you found it. That's the most powerful message I give to anybody I see at a conference is stop worrying about the things you can't control and worry about the things you can, and that's within your own company on your particular shift. Yeah, I mean, it's just simple. It's circle of control versus circle of influence. Focus on what you can control and what you can influence. No, guaranteed. You know, the other day, we, you know, we, one of our battalion chiefs were talking about doing evals, and he was talking about how does somebody get 100 on the fitness part of their annual eval. And it wasn't just because they made 100 on their annual physical assessment. So, you know, yeah, they made 100 on their physical assessment, but that doesn't mean that they get 100 on their annual eval. Had they done anything to get somebody else within the company to do it? And so he, he used an individual, and he said that when he was a company officer, he had a particular firefighter. Not only did he take eating healthy right, working out, he literally, when he got assigned to that company as a firefighter, he got with the company officer and got the company to start working out every shift together and then started slowly, not overnight, he started to, you know, basically 
come up with a menu of what they were eating for breakfast, lunch, and dinner when on duty that was healthier for what we do in the fire service. And he said that was the first firefighter, you know, basically that he gave 100 to was because not only could he achieve 100 on his annual physical assessment, he was raising the bar with the other people in his company. And that's, that's power. I mean, what you do in a company. This last Saturday, we had the Pensacola Beach Firefighter Challenge where you drag a hose in the sand, you drag a big, you know, the big rescue rainy in the sand. And we had a couple of companies that were made up of the whole company was there, not just to compete, but a day off duty together to build that esprit de corps, to bring that bondness and tightness together. And that's how we're going to change the fire service. Not one department at a time, but one company at a time. And you can go to any fire department. i got to throw another one out there. You know, Station 2 in Liberty City, Miami. I've been to a lot of firehouses around the country. I mean, a lot. And Firehouse 2 in Miami-Dade is one of my top ten of just a homemade table, stuff, pictures of fires over the last 40 years hanging on the walls. You can see outside where hose, old hose that's been decommissioned is built into hose packs. You can see where they have different props that the firefighters built, probably paid out of their own pocket or got with the county warehouse. And it's a firehouse that's not worried about what other firehouses in Miami-Dade are doing. They're worried about their firehouse and being the best they can. And any firehouse in the fire service can do that with the right firefighters and the right company officers that focus on what they can control. I think it's important to have a realistic timeline of how long this change actually takes. I mean, you can walk into some stations and start to make change right away, and then there's some other ones where it's going to take months and months. Years, maybe. Yeah, years, yeah. right? But it's like that subtle pressure relentlessly applied is, is what truly makes the change. No guaranteed, and just, you know, even as great as, as I think my fire department is, and it's, it's mine for everybody, I don't think there's anything wrong with ownership, you know, I like the old article from years ago that said it's my saw. Well, for the day it is your saw. If, that's, if that saw is going to be needed at a job, you're using it as your saw. My fire department, you know, I, I think it's awesome. I love it. I could never imagine not, you know, working anywhere else. But even within our fire department, I can see certain company officers over the years that whatever firehouse they work at, they make it better. And, you know, people always say, oh, it's easier to make it better because that company goes to more fires and more calls. And I don't, I don't disagree that that helps, but I've seen great company officers go to some of the slowest firehouses that hardly go to three fires a year. And within six months of a firehouse that's been there for over 10 years, pictures are on the wall of fires. And there's articles of historic fires on the wall to let them know that hey, this fire happened in this city where they don't go to fires and, and making it happen. So, you know, at the end of the day, stop coming up with excuses and just make change. Because I firsthand seen the right person with the right attitude going to a firehouse where for 10 years there was basically nothing hanging on the wall. It looked like, you know, a sterile hospital. And just because they're there, they went and found a way to get pictures of the fires that did happen over the years. They started hanging them on the walls. They got a table built. They got some props in a firehouse, and now everybody just starts to follow, and the next thing you know, they're coming to work, and they're like thinking, you know what? We have the biggest potential for the most catastrophic fires based on our first due territory. And then next thing you know, eventually the time goes by, boom, they have a big fire, they perform well, they do well, and it's like, man, is that awesome. We invested, 
and it paid off. And now it was like going to the big game, and I started, and we won the game. And that's you just got to believe in it. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact is, is we're not all Detroit, or we're not all firefighters in the '70s with FDNY. I mean, that fire might be coming once every couple months. I mean, look at us—we eight months. Yeah, you know, we haven't got really like a big one that we're used to. So it takes a lot of discipline to just stay ready, and that's the key. Is like, regardless of how often it comes, you still got to stay disciplined, stay ready. No, definitely. And, and this is right. I, I, I enjoy training. Um, and I, as crazy as it is, I love watching firefighters train. A lot of times when we go around and we do hands-on training, I kind of always kid around. I don't do anything but keep up with the time and when we rotate. But it's fulfilling for me to watch somebody come up to whether it be, you know, doing an evaluation of a nozzle and what it flows and see their eyes and see the, smile on their face or, you know, watching them get the force of door and, you know, the 30-plus-year the veteran instructors showing them gap-set force and the forks and the ads, and I see them go from they can't really force the door, and I come back 20, 30 minutes later, and now you can already see that improvement. For me, that's just, that's awesome. I mean, that's that's watching somebody grow and develop, and that's what it's all about. You know, we, we just had a pretty good fire last week, and there were some pretty significant things that transpired in relation to big water flowing the deck gun and the rams and stretching complicated lines and pumping hydrants. And I tell you, I was like on top of the world for like three days. And being on top of the world was because of how the firefighters operated from being able to just fully tap the hydrants and getting everything right to maximizing the water supply to apparatus positioning and just the things that they did and knowing how many hours of training they put in to be ready to perform was just, it was unbelievable. I mean, I was like trying to find something wrong. It was hard because I was so excited about what they were doing right. We all agree that trying to make your training as realistic as possible is going to be the, make the difference between a successful and unsuccessful fire. I mean, you've talked about flowing water inside a parking lot is not necessarily the, the most realistic way to do things. I mean, what what things are you doing to make it more realistic, to make your training more replicate the fire ground? You know, I mean, when I'm drilling, you know, I think full gear, you know, is the way to go. When I'm on duty and I'm driving around, I have a, my mind's a little demented. I look at buildings and I run through my head, if I had a fire there, what would I do? So when a fire actually happens, whether it be a private dwelling or a condo or whatever, I've already ran the fire through my head a million times. And I didn't come up with that on my own. I sat in a class long time ago by a guy named Jack Pritchard from the FDNY, you know, made a lot of rescues. And I read an article or sat in his class, and he just talked about laying in bed at night and thinking about the worst call of his career and how would he do it. When I go to work and I'm driving around, I look at a building and say, what would I do if I had a fire on the second floor and people were trapped on the third and fourth floor? You know, how would I go about where would the lines go? Where would I position a rig? So... When I go to a fire, I've already had that fire 30 times, you know, and, and not everybody has the time to do that, and I get it. And, and, and a little bit earlier, you asked me kind of about expectations of other people. I don't want to say I've lowered my expectations of other people, but the longer I do this, the more mature I get, the more I understand not everybody's going to be Bill Gustin or Captain Morris, 40-some years on the job, still putting on their gear, as excited. So that's what makes them special. Not everybody can be special. So, 
you know, just hoping that they get a little more into it than they were. But realistic training is critical. You know, I wish I had more time to be a student and be in that gear doing it or, you know, hands-on. But, you know, trying to create it for my own firefighters is critical, creating realistic, getting real houses, acquired structures with real furniture. A few years ago, I did a writ triage drill with my battalion on firefighter triage, like literally finding more than one firefighter trap. How do you decide if you can only get one, what you would do? And that seems extreme, and I had some people say, so you're wanting us to decide which firefighter get? And, yeah, that's what I did. I, you know, I took a two-story house and, you know, with a, and set up a, a, a basement simulation. It was like zero visibility. Smoke alarms are going off. There's a lot of radio traffic. Got rescue randies fully bunkered out with air packs on them. Bleeded their air down. Did communications where one hadn't been on the radio at all. That's the one they found that the air was completely out. Hadn't been on the radio in 20-some minutes. The other one they found almost simultaneously has 400 pounds of air, and he was just on the radios four minutes earlier. So trying to, in that stressful environment, making that time-compressed decision-making, you know, the sources of power that they see using the National Fire Academy on just combat decision-making is critical, and it's got to be in a stressful environment. A lot of noise, low visibility, tired, the bell's ringing, you're sucking your mask down, and now you got to decide stay or go, take one or leave the other one. What are you going to do? Do I, do I transfill and leave the rip pack with the other one? And that's where you got to do it is under time-compressed decision-making, under the most stressful, exhausted circumstances. Well, it's just decision-making under stress. I mean, you've got to learn to uh, operate under a stressful environment and make decisions when it counts. No, it, it's critical. And, when you know, in the past, whenever – you know, I was in charge of training new recruits and putting them through what we call beyond minimum standards. And the state of Florida, to get hired by a fire department, had to have what's called minimum standards. It's 400 hours. And when they came onto Escambia County, we had a program called Beyond Minimum Standards. And one of the top things that we did in that program is everybody has a radio, and we do literally box alarm assignments, whether it be an acquired structure or a drill tower. And we basically dispatch them, engine one, engine two, engine three, ladder one, you know, structure fire, all callers advising heavy fire, first floor, three cars in a driveway. And when they pull up, they're getting off the rig and they're having their first fire response in a controlled environment, per se. And when they get there, I start telling them, I'll give out assignments. And right as they're about to start doing it, like I'll have a firefighter and I'll be like, hey, I need you at ladder one. I need you to throw a ladder to the Charlie side, second floor with it. And they're going around the building, and right when they're about to throw it to the second floor, like, no, 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 stop. I need you to throw that ladder down. I need you to go to the side door and force it. And I'm literally trying to frustrate them. I'm, I'm getting amped up, and I'm yelling because there's company officers that yell, and I'm getting excited. And I'm, like, literally almost getting in their face, yelling at them like a drill sergeant would be at boot camp to rattle their cage because that's going to happen to them. So let them, from, from before they even get on the rig, let them experience what it's like to be told to do something and then change it. But that happens in the world of sports. You know, you're out there, you're on the line, it's, you know, fourth down and 17, and there's times running out, and the coach is thinking, and all of a sudden the coach is like, you know what, i got to do this, and they change the play. That happens on a fire ground all the time. I mean, one of the first questions you asked me about was operating with one company versus now I'm going to a fire, and i got, you know, four fully staffed companies coming to me. So I go to fires, and it's not uncommon even, you know, if I get there first and I'll tell a company to do something, and before they even can start to get it done, my brain has that Rolodex that sees something 
and says, you know what, that's not best for this, and I'll change it up on them. So that's just reality on the fire ground. It's not it's not the world of in a, in a control office where I say, go make 20 copies, and you let them go make 20 copies. You know, on the fire ground, I say make 20 copies. Well, now I don't need those copies because they're pointless, and I'd be wasting paper. So that's something we have to do better in the fire service, too, is bringing people in the job that this is truly controlled chaos and that fires do not take a timeout. I mean, they're growing faster than they ever have, and reflex time is what it is. And when we're having somebody do something, and it's not that they're not good, but it's taking longer than maybe I calculated it would, and conditions change, I can't stick with that. And there are incident commanders that do that. Once they tell a company to do something, they're not going to change it, and you just can't be that way. You've got to be flexible as an incident commander. You've got to be flexible as a company officer. And surely as a firefighter, you just got to be focused that you understand tactics put out fires, and you're the best you can be for your level of years of experience and putting the proper training in to be able to get the task done when, when told to do it. I mean, the fire ground is just, I think it's just like a playbook of audibles, to be honest. I mean, the best crews that do the best on real fire scenes are the ones that can adapt I, the quickest. Yeah, they identify the problem and they fix it quicker than a crew that might be worse at it, right? Right. Um, they're able to, they don't look for the perfect fire. They know that there's going to be shit that's going to go wrong and they just fix it like as quickly as possible. They fix it and they fix it right too. No, guaranteed, 100%. I mean, I've been to your class and, uh, you know, you have a lot of videos out there and, you know, you're, you're in people's face about, you know, taking this job seriously, being passionate. You, you basically tell them to get out of the profession if they aren't going to be on board with like really investing and, and doing what they said they are going to do. You know, how do you, how do you get to that point? Um, well, it's, it's kind of a, a kind of goes back and it's different levels. You know, the first and foremost one was as a, as a, as a young kid in the late 70s, and I've told this before when I do my work the wrist speech, but, you know, I sat in the back of my dad's car when they pulled a middle-aged gentleman out of a house. He'd been on a couch, and they put him in a body bag. It was the first time I'd ever seen, you know, a person, you know, pulled out of a house, and they didn't survive. And as I got older, my dad explained that, you know, they, they had missed him on the search, took a little longer to get to the house fire than we would want in reality. And, you know, and then as I got older, when things didn't go right for me and a coach, you know, got, got in my face, told me the truth that hurt my feelings, the old, the old saying, you know, the truth pisses you off just before it sets you free. And as I grew up, and a, you know, as a, as a kid going to, to, to fires with my dad, going to wrecks, it kind of developed. You know, in 1995, um, I had the misfortune of being responsible for cutting out a fellow soccer player that was in the backseat of a car um, where the driver was the most drunk person in the car, and I was using an air pneumatic spreader. We didn't have hydraulic tools, and there's the helicopters 50 yards away. I can still I can hear the helicopter running. They're not shutting the helicopter down. That tells me they want to hot load him, and it just took longer than we wanted to to get you know to get him out. And I get so emotional. So I'm not about he, he went to the hospital, and three days later he died. His brain's full, and at the end of the day, you know, this goes on. And in 2000, Maurice Bartholomew gets killed in a fire, uh, you know, a house fire where he's on a nozzle, death on the nozzle, you know, a basic house fire, fires in the Charlie Delta corner, Phil Venton should be, should be able to go in there, squirt water for 30 seconds and put it out. And he doesn't come out. So, 
you know, I could tell you story after story from a little kid, you know, going to fires with my dad to, to playing competitive soccer to just, you know, failures that I was a part of that I hold myself responsible. I hold people above me responsible. And, you know, I think the changing factor for me was understanding through studying of Andy Fredrickson water flow that on November 25th, 2000, when Maurice died, I said enough's enough. I'm, I'm no longer looking for new friends. And people, anybody that knows me knows I have a say in it. It, it sounds arrogant, but it's the truth. I'm not looking for any new friends. I don't have time to talk to my great friends that, you know, I truly love. You know, sometimes some of my closest, bestest friends, I go two weeks without talking to them on the phone because I'm just so busy, you know, with my own personal family. And, and so there was a day I woke up and I said, I'm no longer playing politics. You know, when I go somewhere to teach, I have a pretty standard saying. It's, you know, it sounds rude, but I say, you asked me to come here. I've never invited myself to speak anywhere. So I'm going to tell you what I think. If I come back, great. If I don't, that's fine. But I'm not looking to get a second gig here. I'm not a guy looking for gigs. And I sleep better at night. Failure is failure. Success is success. Call it what it is. And there's just, there's, there's way too many things that could have gone right if somebody would not have accepted mediocrity or even less than that.